Hi, I'm Scott Corelli. And I'm Zach Luna. This year, Spider-Man finally joins the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Spider-Man Homecoming. But 15 years ago, the friendly neighborhood webhead hit the big screen for the first time ever. Introducing Spider-Man Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze and celebrate the Spider-Man movies one minute at a time. Starting with Sam Raimi's web-slinging debut, we discuss everything from genetically engineered super spiders to wall-crawling heroics. Join us as we navigate the great power and great responsibility behind every single minute of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Spider-Man Minute, available at DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And just other favorite edit is when we start in on the intro script and or after. we haven't um, edited it, so it says like I'm Todd Mac for Uncanny. <laughs> so it's like, I'm Todd. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think about every four episodes that one happens. Oh. Hello everyone and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we are discussing the crew of the Battlestar Galactica from the 2003 reimagined Battlestar Galactica TV series. And to help us with this discussion, we are joined by my sister, Virginia McAllister. Hello. Welcome. Yet another member of the family being brought in for the discussion. <laughs> <Dorowski>. <laughs> uh, so this has been a request that you had made to us that we should talk about Battlestar Galactica, and I don't know how long ago into the podcast you suggested it, but we are finally getting to it. There's often a back catalog for those. And I guess, how or, or why was this a series that you suggested for us to cover? Because it is the best TV series ever. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> That's it. Really? I, I only watch TV today to try and find something as good. Wow. I am still disappointed. <laughs> Wow. So it's safe to say you are a fan of Battlestar Galactica. I'm a huge fan. (laughs) What would you say has come close? In TV series? So we can get a a feel for your your, Your tastes. uh, tastes. Like, what's your top tier TV series? I mean, I watch a lot of fantasy and Mm sci-fi and um, historical dramas and things like that, and there's too much TV um, right now to really keep up with. Yeah. I mean, I watch everything for, you know... Arrow and Flash and the Marge- or Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Love the Last Kingdom on Netflix and, you know, and then we binge watch things like Frasier and Parks and Rec and, you know, so. Would you say this is idea. in a league all of its own? It is. Okay. All right. So, um, for those of you not familiar with uh, Battlestar Galactica, we are looking at specifically the miniseries, which predated the TV series, and then the first op- episode of the first season of the TV series. Um, and this show tells the story of the last humans who are survivors from an attack by Cylons, who are sentient robotic life originally made by humans, and then the Cylons turned on their creators. And the miniseries was written by Ronald D. Moore and directed by Michael Reimer and aired in December 2003. The first episode of the first season, titled 33, was also written by Ronald D. Moore and directed by Michael Reimer. The core cast in these episodes are Edward James Olmos as Commander Adama, Mary McDonnell as President Lara Roslin, 
Katie Sackoff as Kara Starbuck Thrace, Jamie Bamber as Lee Apollo Adama, James Callis as Dr. Gaius Balter, and Trisha Helfer as number six, and Grace Park as Sharon Boomer Valeri. And this is one of those where we just kind of have to talk about the cast. <laughs> um, it's it's hard to say that there's one character that stands out in these in this miniseries, in this episode, and in the series as a whole. Like it's it's very much an ensemble show. And the the heavy lifting for the storylines is shared amongst the entire cast. It's really balanced. Um, it, it's not the first time we've done that. We did that for uh, Northern Exposure and Princess for Bride. Princess Bride and for Corner Gas. There, there's some stories that it's not one character that's really the protagonist. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to Battlestar Galactica? Um, so I used to watch a lot of TV shows on the Sci-Fi Network. Like, I watched um, Stargate when it was on and all its iterations and things like that. So I saw commercials when the miniseries, before the miniseries was going to be aired, and watched some of the miniseries. I had a young baby at the time and got to the scene where, sorry, spoilers, the the Cylon snaps the baby's neck. And I said, okay, I'm done. I'm out. (laughs) I understand. Turned it off at that point. And didn't watch the rest of the miniseries, and then when the first season aired, again, you know, just saw lots of commercials for it, but really didn't watch anything. And I would read lots of newspaper articles like USA Today or Entertainment Weekly. It was so critically acclaimed. Uh, Everybody just loved it. Um, And finally, like, I had left the TV on, and one of the episodes was on, and I was just hooked immediately. (laughs) I didn't know... The backstory, I didn't know what was going on, but the writing just, like, immediately got me and the characters. So I turned it off as soon as the first season came out on DVD. This was before, you know, Netflix and binge-watching and everything. I got the first season on DVD, consumed it in, like, a week, and was just totally hooked on it and became involved with um, a fan forum on uh, a website owned by Richard Hatch, who was in both the original and the new series, got to know him um, pretty well in, in real life. And he passed away actually just a couple months ago, which has been a huge shock and really sad to Battlestar what Galactica. What character things. is he? Um, so in the original, he was Apollo. Uh-huh. And then in the new series, he's Tom Zarek, who's not in these okay. episodes. He's not in this season yet. Yeah. but uh, And then through him, I worked for Salt Lake Comic Con and became involved with them, did projects for them, and through them, I've been able to meet a lot of the other cast members. I know the series because you lent me the DVDs. Uh, So I've mentioned this a few times that when I was in grad school in Michigan, we had a a TV night where we watched. uh, It started with Lost, and then other shows got added to the mix when Lost ended, and Battlestar Galactica was one of the shows that got added. Uh, however, uh, my wife and I, we finished grad school before we had finished Battlestar Galactica. I want to say we were into the third season, and there's four seasons. Yes. Uh, and then with the move, and we were unsettled for a while, and we didn't know which direction of the country we were moving to for a little <laughs> bit, uh, we never picked it back up. And after watching the miniseries and the, the first episode of the first season, I was like, I need to power through and finish this, because there's so many mysteries that get introduced that I know weren't fully resolved by the point I was watching that mm-hmm. I want to see how it all pans out. And it has really good, strong writing and directing and acting all around. Like, it's it's just well-produced. It's one of those where everyone on the team, you can tell, is firing on all cylinders as they're making this. And the result is a really captivating show that I, I want to go finish that, finish out the seasons that I've missed. It's well worth it to go to the end. 
Uh, I remember when it was on and everybody was talking about it and I, I didn't watch it. I don't know why I didn't watch it at that time when we were in grad school, but I didn't. I remember there's this really great Portlandia skit about Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. Um, and people binge watch. <laughs> like, let's just watch one episode, and then it's like six days later, and they're still <laughs> they're still watching it. Um, the cast and crew of, of thirty three, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. Um, and then uh, there was a time when it was on Netflix, and I thought I've got to just watch this, and I started watching it, and it's it's impossible not to recognize the quality of this show, like from. From the beginning, it's like you said, everybody's firing on all cylinders. It's really good. Uh, but for some reason, I just stopped watching it. I don't know why. And then it was gone yeah. from Netflix. And then it was gone from Netflix. <laughs> and so I, I've never finished it. I've never felt like I have to go back and finish Battlestar Galactica. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, I, I don't have any issues with the quality of the show. It's really, really good. It's kind of, I, I felt today after watching... Well, I, I did watch four hours in a row, <laughs> but I felt just sort of exhausted uh, today watching it. And I didn't, I know that the first time that I watched it, I'm quite sure that I didn't watch this, the series. I just started with episode one. Does that sound probably right? Like so you didn't watch the mini series first? You just started well, it was with just, I just started at the beginning of whatever was on Netflix. And I think it was this episode. The 33, not the mini series. Yes. Okay. I think... Which it could have because I don't been. have memories of all of the scenes, like the mm -hmm. things that I know would stand out, like the scene with the right. baby. Do you, I remember you being horrified. Are never going to forget that. Yeah, <laughs> and I had no memory of it, but I had memories of other parts of it, mm -hmm. and I think that I saw those in like previously on Battlestar Galactica. Right. I think I possibly may have like fabricated memories of mm. some parts of it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that's my story. All right. Uh, well, before we get to the trivia that we have for this, uh, we would just like to ask our listeners' help in our march to 100 Apple Podcast reviews. Apple Podcast is not the only place where people find podcasts, but it is the most popular, and more reviews help us or help new listeners to find us. Uh, we are in the 50s right now, so we just need a double <laughs> where we're at. <laughs> just, you know, double it. Uh, the easiest way to leave those reviews is to launch whatever app you use for podcasts, most likely Apple's podcast app, and you got to go to search. It's it's not intuitive to leave a review, so we understand if some of you, I, I like, I know at one point my parents said I'd like to leave you a review, but I literally could not figure out how to do it. <laughs> but if you launch the app and tap search and then enter the name of the podcast that you're looking for, it'll show the the cover art of podcasts that match that name. You tap on our cover art, and then. Under there, it'll give you a list of our episodes, and there's a tab that says reviews. you got to click on reviews, and then you can leave a review there. Again, we know it's not intuitive, so uh, hopefully that'll help uh, all of you to know how to get to the review section of Apple Podcast. All right, well, I found some trivia, and this is one of those series that the fandom <laughs> is, some trivia. <laughs> is so intense, and uh, like the online community of fans is still pretty vibrant today, right, Virginia? It is, yeah. Uh, that I'm sure... If you are listening to this and you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, you're going to have more trivia than what I have here. I'm scratching the, the small surface of, of this. Um, the series, which ran from 2003 to 2009 on the Sci-Fi Channel, is a reimagining of a 1978 series, also titled Battlestar Galactica. That series ran for one year, was canceled. Some of the stories were continued in books, and then it was revived as Battlestar Galactica 1980. That's the title of that series, right? Which was a 10-episode oh, yes. kind of miniseries tryout that from everything I've seen and from what you said, is not well regarded. 
Most fans do not acknowledge that as Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> so a failed revival in 1980. Yes. Uh, that series, the 1978 series, was created by Glenn A. Larson, who would later, later create a series called Knight Rider, which I loved when I was a kid. <laughs> I need to. Uh, Ronald D. Moore is the main creative force behind this Sci-Fi Channel relaunch, and he has a unique start in the entertainment industry. Uh, he he took a tour on the set of Star Trek The Next Generation and shoved a spec script into the hands of Gene Roddenberry's personal assistant. And that's how he ended up getting hired to, uh, well, I, I guess the story is that then they, they liked it enough that they said, go get an agent and resubmit this through your agent. He did that and got hired. Wow. Uh, they bought that script and then he sold them a second script and they got hired into the writer's room after that, which is not the typical way that anyone gets their start in Hollywood to take a tour of a TV set and, <laughs> and just drop a script. Oh, oh, what's this falling out of my pocket here? <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I left something around here. If you find it, just look at it. <laughs> wow. And uh, from there, he has had a pretty successful career uh, in Hollywood. And most famous, he is most associated, though, uh, with his career with this Battlestar Galactica. And currently, he does Outlander. It's oh, okay. on Showtime. And mm-hmm. so he, or stars. One of those cable that. channels that starts um, with an S. But yes, so currently, he's the showrunner for that. Okay. Uh, Battlestar Galactica won a Peabody Award, which is, again, an award for just greatness uh, about explorations of humanity, basically. <laughs> and it also won a Television Critics Association Program of the Year Award. It was nominated for a whole bunch of Emmys, and it won a few technical, but nothing else. Like, no writing or directing that was nominated for several of those. And it was also included in Time Magazine's list of the 100 greatest TV shows ever. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Some good company it's going to be in. Uh, the, and my final bit of trivia, the new series aired 25 years after the original series had launched, which means we are only about a decade away from a new reimagined Battlestar Galactica reaching the airwaves. <laughs> it always weirds me out when I see how much time has passed on media that I love. Yes. <laughs> oh, that is already that old, isn't it? So it's just about 15 years old. None of us are getting any younger. Nope. Listeners, this podcast provides you with over four hours of content, hopefully entertainment, every month. If that's worth a quarter per hour to you, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now we're going to have a long summary, and this is going to be up there with Todd's summary of Stranger Things, as far as the most content getting summarized ever on the protagonist podcast. Because the miniseries, it was three hours, and then the first episode is about 45 or 50 minutes, so almost four hours of content. So Todd, you still have the record with eight hours for Stranger Things, (laughs) but this is more than we usually do. Yeah, it's a pretty complex story. So And there are a lot of plot threads. When I was watching this, yeah. I just kept thanking myself that you had volunteered, or thanking you, I was grateful that you had volunteered. <laughs> I was, let me read re- Thanking that. yourself for allowing her. <laughs> yes. That was not a, a well contradictory thought. <laughs> I made this choice so well. <laughs> I think what you're trying to say is, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> When I was watching the miniseries, I was just very thankful that you had volunteered to write the summary, because I just kept thinking, that's another plot line that you can't leave out of the summary. Yeah, and as I went through it, there are, I'm going to apologize now, there are characters that don't even make it into the (laughs) summary, because it would just get entirely too unwieldy. 
it, it's long as it is. Um, but when I was on the, the forum, this was something, one of the things that I did was do summaries of episodes oh, so you... that we could then discuss. Oh, wow. So, so I've had practice. You're the person for the job. I have had practice at this, but right. this still doing the mini series was, it was an adventure. So here we go. All right. So a little bit of backstory, um, before the, uh, mini series begins. So, the humans reside on 12 colonies, or 12 worlds, which have names similar to our 12 zodiac signs. So things like Caprica, Sagittarion, Geminon, etc. Uh, the humans are known as the Colonials. Forty years before the events of the miniseries, the humans had created the Cylons, who are robotic artificial intelligence. Uh, and they rose up in war against the humans. Eventually an armistice was signed, and the, and the Cylons left the 12 colonies. The humans and the Cylons were to meet every year on a space station to maintain relations, but the Cylons had never been seen since the war. Uh, as the miniseries begins, a colonial officer is on the station, and suddenly the door opens. Two robotic Cylons walk in with large glowing red eyes, followed by what looks like to be a human woman. She approaches the officer and asks him if he is alive. He says yes, and she kisses him. She then says it has begun, and we see a Cylon base star firing missiles at the Armistice Station. That lady may be the reason why I did not continue the show, because she freaks me out. <laughs> she terrifies me. Number six? Yes. She, and, well, and she's not called number six in this, but she eventually gets called number six. She she references herself as Cylon number six. So we do... She references herself that, but... She it, does a lot of bad she things. She doesn't really have a... Yeah. Yeah, she, and if it wasn't her, it was... Well, you know that I'm really not happy with the idea of, like, shapeshifters or people taking other people's identities. Um, and this falls in that category. And uh, that's, I'm sure, the other reason why I was like, I'm kind <laughs> of... I will say I she has this. a very interesting story arc to the end of the series. Really? She does. Because she just seems like so. bad news to me. <laughs> so, and I, though I have to give total props to Trisha Helfer, the actress. She was a model before this. She was not an actress. So, and she does a fantastic job she in this She nails creepy. I, yeah. I, I, so, uh, total props to her every time I see her. I'm just amazed. Um, okay, so we get the opening credits, and then we're going to ping pong between several kind of parallel storylines. So, I'm going to streamline those a bit um, in talking about them. It's not necessarily going to follow every time they appear on the screen. Um, so, first we have Laura Roslin. Um, played by Mary McDonald, and she is the Secretary of Education for the colonial government. Um, she is diagnosed with advanced breast cancer just before she boards a ship that's going to take her to the Battlestar Galactica. Um, and a Battlestar is somewhere between a cross between like a battleship and an aircraft carrier in space. Um, the Battlestar is old and it's being decommissioned and will then be turned into a museum. Um, on the, on Battlestar Galactica, we see Lieutenant Cara Thrace, whose call sign is Starbuck, uh, running through the hallways. She passes Commander William Adama, and we then follow William Adama as several officers approach him and com uh, comment on the honor of serving with him. The do uh, the deck crew, <laughs> led by, uh, Galen Tyrrell, presents Commander Adama with his old Viper, which he flew when he was a pilot pilot in the previous Cylon War, uh, as well as a photograph of him with his two sons named Lee and Zack. Uh, we'll later learn that Zack was engaged to Starbuck, uh, and she was his trainer when he was learning to become a Viper pilot, but Zack then died in a training exercise. 
Uh, we then see Starbuck with several other pilots in the rec room playing cards with the XO named Colonel Ty. Ty has been drinking, and he makes jabs about Starbuck's unruly behavior. Starbuck retorts with a comment about Ty's wife, and he throws over the table, and Starbuck punches him. He orders her to the brig for striking a superior officer. Adama and Ty then have a conversation about Starbuck, in which Adama comments that she is the best Viper pilot he's ever seen, and Ty eventually agrees not to press charges. Commander Adama's son, Captain Lee Adama, whose call sign is Apollo, then arrives at Galactica. He is obviously holding a very large grudge against his father and basically acts like a big jerk. <laughs> uh, he visits Starbuck in the brig and they talk about the past. Uh, Lee later yells at his father, accusing him of pushing Zack into being a pilot when Zack was not cut out for it, and that is why Zack died. Uh, Lara Roslin then arrives on board, and she is met by Aaron Dorrell, who's some sort of PR guy. Uh, she then talks with Commander Adama about getting a network computer connection to the ship so the teachers can access it. Adama says they have computers on board, but he refuses to have them networked. Um, Adama then gives a speech. That, that's because of the Cylon War. Right, because he was ago. a part of the previous Cylon and War. And technology became a double edged sword for right. humans. Yeah, because that was how the Cylons uh, could attack the, some of the humans, or one of their weaknesses. So, um, during the decommissioning ceremony, Adama gives a speech, um, but it is clear midway through that it is not necessarily the one he prepared. He references the Cylons, saying that the humans created life and then tried to wash their hands of it. He says that humans still lie, kill, steal, etc., and don't stop to question whether they have the right to survive. He concludes by saying, sooner or later you can't run from the things you've done. Um, meanwhile, on Caprica, we see a famous genius scientist named Gaius Baltar, played by James Callis, um, giving a TV interview in which he talks about the need for technological advancement. Uh, a blonde woman walks into his home who looks just like the woman on the armistice station. That blew up. <laughs> that blew up already. <laughs> yes. Uh, she and Baltar then have relations, and we see her spine glowing red. Uh, just like the glowing red eyes of the mechanic Cylons. Um, they later have a conversation about how she helped Baltar with a project, and in return he gave her access to the colonial defense systems to give her an advantage in a defense contract. That is a really poor choice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very. <laughs> Very. He really is a... <laughs> he is a character and a half. Guys. Oh, I... For being a genius, <laughs> he is really an idiot. <laughs> Discuss Baltar because he is one of my favorite complex characters to talk about. Um, uh, let's see. She later returns to Baltar's home and tells him that she is really one of twelve humanoid Cylon models. She is Cylon number six, and the Cylons are returning home to the colonies that day. We then see bombs start to fall in the background. I have a question. Yes. Uh, so when she says she's one of twelve, does that mean she has twelve bodies? Or does that mean that there are 12... Human models. So there's 12 different... Human models. models. Yes. So her and the boomer and... and... we need a couple okay. of them throughout. Right. Okay. Um, yes. So she's one of the 12 models, but they have kind of infinite copies. Oh, okay. Uh, I so... thought that it meant that there were 12 of her. Oh, so like 12 copies just of her. Yes, of her. And so she's down was... one because they blew up the space station. Which right. Seems like a waste if right. you only have 12. No, they have. They <laughs> have yeah, she blew up on the space station and then, she, and then she blew up on the Earth when the. So then 
then she said, I'm number six, meaning there would be six left. Right. No. But, uh, not, this, no. not the case here. Not the case. Okay. Unfortunately. <laughs> yes, really, truly, You can't get rid of her. I'd love um. to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she, and this is something she explains to them, is that um, she can't die if her body is damaged, then she just, her consciousness is transferred into a new body that looks just like her current one. Um, they call it resurrection. Um, and Baltar at that point realizes that the Cylons got through a back door that was built into the colonial defense systems because of the access that he gave to this woman. Um, I love his reaction that he wants to call his lawyer, and she says, there's not going to be anyone left to try you in a few hours, so don't worry about the lawyer. Um, Baltar cries, says he doesn't want to die, and then as a bomb drops near his home, she shields him with her body so that he is saved, and she's killed. Um, Galactica at that point is informed that the colonies are under attack, and when the Cylon raiders approach, the pilots of their new Viper Mark 7s um, go out and they lose control of their Vipers, and they are all destroyed. Um, they then start to figure out that the newer Vipers and Battlestars could be controlled by the Cylons because of the defense program infiltrated by the Cylons. However, because Galactica does not have networked computers or the new defense systems on the ship, she is immune to Cylon control. Starbuck flies out in one of the older Viper Mark IIs that was meant to be part of the museum on Galactica and shoots down several Cylons. The Galactica is hit with a nuclear warhead and a fire erupts. Ty orders that the area um, has to be vented, which kills over 100 crew members. Adama realizes that they are the only Battlestar left in the Colonial Fleet, but they don't have ammunition on the ship. Because... Was there a Battlestar for each of the colonies? So there yes. are 12 Twelve again. There's a lot well, of twelve in this series. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, if you know, Glenn Larson was uh, uh, LDS, and so the, the governing body is called the Quorum of the Twelve. So if you know anything Modeling about Modeling the Mormon Church. LDS theology in, mm-hmm. in the Mormon Church. He models a lot of things on the Mormon Church. Um, so they don't have ammunition on the ship because, again, it was going to be turned into a museum, so they have to plot a faster-than-light jump to an ammunition depot called Ragnar Station. Um, meanwhile, a colonial pilot named Sharon Valeri, her call sign is Boomer, and Carl Agathon, whose call sign is Hilo, are in a Raptor. A Raptor is kind of like a between a scout ship and a transportation ship. Uh, they're outside the fighting, um, but they're hit by a missile, and they end up landing on Caprica to make repairs. Uh, some humans who have survived the attack see them and or see them see them land and then they rush uh, to the ship. Uh, they only have a few seats, so they say that they can take the children and then they draw lots to take a few others. Hilo sees Baltar in the crowd and knowing that Baltar is a famous scientist, he offers to give up his seat so that Sharon can take Baltar back to the colonial fleet. Uh, Lara Roslin, uh, at this point, was flying back to Caprica when the attack began, and she was escorted by Leah Dama in the old Mark II Viper that his father used to fly. They learned that the president of the colonies and almost all of the cabinet members have been killed. Lara Roslin is the only one who has survived, and she takes the oath of office on the ship and becomes the president of the colonies. Uh, Sharon Valeri uh, and her raptor meet up with Colonial One, and Rosalind asks Sharon to go out and find all the other civilian vessels um, who have been stranded because of the attacks and gather them together. President Rosalind meets Baltar and asks him to be her scientific advisor on the Cylons. 
Baltar agrees, but then he starts having visions or personal projections of the Cylon number six that he was involved with on Caprica. He can see her and no one else can. And she does not care about his personal space or what other <laughs> conversations are happening. Like, she'll just start interjecting things and hit. I love the actor's eyes, like, bouncing between the conversation with a human and the conversation with this image from his mind. He does it so well. He <laughs> really fantastic. is. Yeah. <laughs> and especially, especially in 33, there's yeah. some great conversations. When, when he's yeah. answering both of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and everyone else is like, you're not really fully paying attention to me, but you seem to be yeah. <laughs> responding. <laughs> because he's having a conversation with a woman no one else can see. Is that what we call that? A conversation? A conversation? And some scenes other yeah, I, it's one thing to have a be, be trying to hold two conversations at the same time. It's quite another to try to have a conversation and do what he's trying to do at the same time. Yes. Uh, okay, so uh, Lee is on the ship with President Roslin at this point. He communicates with his father on Galactica, tells him about the new president's plan. But Adama orders Lee to return to Galactica. Lee refuses, and there is another Asylon attack on uh, the ship that he's on that now becomes known as Colonial One, since the president is on it. Uh, Lee uses a magnetic pulse generator to fool the Cylons, but it also fools Adama, and he believes that Lee has died. At this point, Adama jumps Galactica to Ragnar Station so they can go after the ammunition. Uh, when they arrive there, there is plenty of ammunition, but there's also an arms dealer named Leoben waiting there for them. After a deep philosophical conversation between the two of them, Adama realizes that Leoben is actually a Cylon in humanoid form, and he kills him. Uh, President Roslin, Lee, and the fleet of civilian vessels uh, they have gathered together join up with Galactica at Ragnar. Baltar, under the guidance of the Cylon woman in his head, and to deflect suspicion from himself... Um, and his involvement with the defense system accuses the PR guy, Doral, of being a Cylon. The Colonials leave him imprisoned on Ragnar Station. Adama wants to go fight the Cylons, but Roslin argues that they need the Battlestar to defend all that is left of the human race. He eventually agrees, and they send out the Battlestar and Vipers to protect the fleet while it jumps away into uncharted space. In a very cool scene, Starbuck saves Apollo, and once they are on board, Galactica also jumps away. Adama then gives another speech, telling them that the colonial fleet commanders knew of a 13th colony called Earth, and they are going to travel there to establish a new home. Roslin confronts Adama after the speech, and he admits that Earth is just a myth, but he needed to give everyone a reason to survive and keep going. Uh, and then at the very end, we see several Cylon copies, including the Cylon number 6 and Leoben, rescue Doral on Ragnar, and it turns out he actually was a Cylon. Uh, we then see a copy of Sharon, so we learn that the Sharon on Galactica is also a Cylon. Though it has been said that some of the Cylons don't know they're Cylons. Right. So some Cylon copies are programmed to actually believe they're human, and they're just kind of um, embedded Cylon agents, and that's the case with the, the Sharon. The boomer that's on Galactica. The Sharon that's Galactica. on Galactica. Right. Um, the Cylons declare that they will have to wipe out all of the humans, or the humans will return and seek revenge on them. And that is the end of the miniseries, right there. Good summary. All right, on to 33, the first <laughs> episode. Um, 
As the episode begins, we learn that the Cylons show up every 33 minutes after the Colonial Fleet makes a faster-than-light jump, forcing them to then make another jump. This has happened 238 times over the past five days, leaving the fleet, and particularly the crew of Galactica, with almost no sleep. And they look it at the beginning of this episode. They look terrible. Um, on Colonial One, Baltar points out that there are limits to what the human body and the mind can take as he slips in and out of dreams or visions with the blonde Cylon number six. She tells him that God has a plan for him and he needs to have faith and follow the plan. He responds that he does not believe in God or gods, uh, since the Colonials are polytheistic and the Cylons are monotheistic. And she warns him that what God giveth, he can also take away. President Roslin's assistant, Billy, then tells her that Dos Dr. Amarak wants to meet with her, as he has information about how the Cylons got through the colonial defenses. Baltar hears this, and he knows Dr. Amarak worked at the Ministry of Defense, and may have figured out Baltar's unwitting, unwitting involvement with the Cylons. Rosalind says that she will meet with the doctor after the next jump. When they jump again, Galactica realizes that the Olympic carrier, which was another ship in the uh, fleet with who had over 1,300 people on it, did not make the jump. Ty yells at everyone that even though they are tired, they cannot make mistakes or people will die. The pilots are ordered to start taking stims, and Starbuck initially refuses. She then yells at Apollo, telling him that he is trying to be everyone's friend rather than being the CAG, and that he needs to order her to take the stims. <laughs> and then they both crack up laughing, and <laughs> she takes them. They are very tired at this point. Um, on Colonial One, Rosalind keeps a head count of the fleet on a white um, board by her desk, and she subtracts the 1,345 people they've lost. When the next 33 minutes have passed, the Cylons do not appear, and they wonder if the Cylons were tracking the Olympic carrier. The fleet begins to stand down and get some rest, but then the Olympic carrier jumps back in. They say that they had problems with their FTL drive, but the Cylons left them alone. They also um, say they have Dr. Amarak on board, and he believes there is a traitor in the fleet and wants to talk to the president immediately. Baltar hears this and exclaims that they need to break off communication with the Olympic carrier and keep it away from the fleet, because it has probably been infiltrated by Cylons. And even the communications could allow the Cylons in. Yes, right? exactly. Uh, Adama agrees, and when it appears that there are nukes on the Olympic carrier, he wants to shoot it down. Roslin initially balks, because there could still be people on board. Uh, the Cylon number six in Baltar's head tells him that he must repent and accept God to be saved. Out of desperation, he says he repents, and at that moment, Rosalind gives the order to shoot down the Olympic carrier. Starbuck does not want to shoot the ship, but then Lee fires, and Starbuck follows. Um, 24 hours later, the Cylons have not reappeared. Commander Adama goes to Lee and tells him that it was his order, so he has the responsibility for it. Lee responds that he pulled the trigger, and that was his responsibility. On Colonial One, Billy tells Rosalind there uh, is an update on the headcount in the fleet, and she asks how many to subtract. He tells her to add one. A baby boy was born that morning on one of the other ships. A little bit of hope. The I end. like that. <laughs> you needed a touch of hope after that episode. I like that ending. <laughs> I do, too. She's very happy. You but can see her getting teary and smiling. And man, it's just exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting to watch, especially that 33 Oh, yeah. Goodness. I am so tired just thinking about <laughs> how tired they all are. And that's part of the point. <laughs> yes. They were tired, and you need to be too. So, uh, what do we want to talk about first? I think there are a lot of big ideas and a lot of great characters. Do you want to tackle ideas or characters first? Uh, so, 
I think uh, Gaius, is that his name? Gaius? Yeah. This guy, <laughs> he really... <laughs> he's a piece of work. He's so he slimy. really is a piece of work. <laughs> yeah, he is so slimy. And he makes the worst decisions. And his motivations seem to be 100% selfish. And he seems to be driven by not only like self-preservation, self-interest, but yeah, well, self-preservation, but um, like his, he does not think with his brain. <laughs> when it comes to number six, absolutely not. <laughs> it makes you wonder how somebody like him could be considered like such a genius because he just seems like an idiot. It seems like he would have ruined his career eight times over before we get to the point where he's destroying the human race. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I he, but he seems so real to me. Like, he could really be a public oh, yeah. figure, especially today with some of the public <laughs> figures. I know, I, I want to say, no, that's impossible, but, but, uh, but I know that it's not. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, he seems like somebody that could have just walked right out of the news, and I think that's part of... That opening scene of seeing him be interviewed on TV, he really seems like somebody you could see on TV today. And then have a messed up personal life. Oh, yeah. yeah, That would be scandal-ridden if everyone knew what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I I, I think that's a very accurate statement. And I recall in the seasons that I got through that he had one of the most transformative character arcs, though, for... Like where he goes he is, through a lot. Yeah, <laughs> for, for where he is at the beginning as a complete and utter slime ball who uh, is a complete atheist and is one hundred percent driven by self preservation and solely not of humanity, but like I myself want to live. I don't care what happens to anyone else. Yeah, he but... he, at least through the seasons I was I was into, had changed his worldview somewhat. Doesn't she say at some point that the thing that I loved about you is that you? are, like, totally unemotional, you're logical, and you... You're you, amoral, basically. Yeah, you're amoral, you're and you always ethics. have no remorse. And <laughs> yeah. we totally see that. Like, he has turned the, over the keys of the kingdom, right? Yeah. To the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And she tells him, and his first thought is, I need to get a lawyer. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> it's not, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I've done. Right. And I feel so horrible. What are going to be the ramifications? All these people are dying. All these people are going to die. It's just, I need to get a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a well-written line to reveal a character. And that's one thing I do want to say about the miniseries. These characters, there's a lot that get introduced. But within a scene, you understand who these people are. Yeah. Immediately. That's quality yeah. of writing, so quality fast. of acting and directing. All of those. You, you understand who Starbuck is. Instantly. You understand mm-hmm. the tension between Adama and his son instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the baggage that they're carrying gets revealed in a way that never feels like this is heavy expository writing. It just, in the scene, you learn enough to understand who each character is. And that line of Gaius is, of, I need a lawyer, is just one of those great <laughs> summation <laughs> lines of, this guy's a slime ball. <laughs> so I have a question about number six. Because I... Well, it's hard for me to even see her as a character. And maybe that's, maybe I'm, maybe I'm robot racist or, or something. Is it, okay, I, I <laughs> don't remember. Does that this, make sense what yeah, I'm saying? Well, there? well, also like the, there's the number six in his head. And then there's the, the number, number six, six the, the physical robots of number, right. of, of number six. Okay. Right. And does it ever get resolved? And you don't have to like, Say, yeah, let's just who are gonna go listen. Yeah. Does it get resolved what this robot six in his head, or, or Simon six in his head is? No. Well, 
In the last episode, maybe. Because, like, but, I remember there's enough ambiguity of, like, is this something that is literally right. just a manifestation of a psychosis of his? Is this something that the Cylons somehow implanted in his head? Like, and right. I think that ambiguity is supposed to be felt, where we don't understand this version of number six's motivations compared to the other Cylons. Right. I mean, the head number six is pretty consistently um, always tied to, like, being a messenger of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in his head, you know, whether or not she's actually messenger of God, you know, or what, I, I mean, they never show, you know, what God is or who God is or anything There's like no that. There's no Star Trek where and, we sail to the end of the universe, Star Trek universe and then we find him. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of this show is they throw a lot of things out there, but they never come down and explicitly say it's this. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of leave it to the audience you know, to the audience's experiences or perceptions to kind of figure out for them what they think it is. Could we say, without spoiling anything, that it would be beneficial for viewers of this to view number six in his head and number six out there in bodies as separate yes. characters? They are definitely okay. separate characters. Because, like, I didn't get that from the one this. That, that shields him. So she becomes what's known as Caprica number six. She actually gets a name okay. and becomes a character throughout the whole show. And so she's there physically interacting. Everybody can see her. And she's the one that you she, say has a really interesting She has arc. a really interesting story arc. Okay. Um, but then there's also throughout the entire show, the head number six. We okay. call her head six. And so they're both there throughout the show, but they are definitely very different. And do they both have arcs, or do you see? So it seems like a head six is more a static character, yeah, messing with Gaius and slash big messenger. Yeah, she she stays pretty consistent and on message all the way. But Caprica six, she's the more interesting one. She's the one that we see just at the very end. Marching into the station Uh, with Hilo. That's a version of Hilo shoots her. Oh, so, yeah, and I didn't talk, I realized I didn't talk about Hilo in my yeah, summary he, he, of he's 33. Left on Caprica, right? So we do see him in 33 that, um, he is on Caprica and he's running from the Cylons. And, and, and number six. And one of the number sixes, you know, kind of comes up to him and also kisses him. It seems to be her greeting where she basically <laughs> says, Are you alive? What a and, greeting. And kisses him. <laughs> and, uh, and then we see a copy of Sharon shoot the number six. And rescue Hilo from the Cylons, and they're off. But as viewers, we know that is a Cylon, not the one that doesn't know she's a Cylon. (laughs) Right. So it's very complicated when you're trying to deal with all of these copies of the Cylons. Talking about these can get very confusing, I'm sure. Yeah, I want to know where the real Sharon is. Is there a real Sharon? Well, so, I mean, that's the thing with all of these copies. Was there one original one that was copied first? They never... And the Cylons that don't know their Cylons, like, what, what are they, like... They're just programmed not to know their If anyone in this room is a Cylon, please raise your hand <laughs> well, right and, now. And that becomes a huge storyline. It is the fear of... Could I be a Cylon? Yeah. Could my the person standing right. next to me Which be a Cylon? And they don't me. know I it? I hate this. That tension is just there. Right, and that's one it of drives those... drives me bananas. Things. That's one of those fears that I love when shows start to delve into, because it's such a human thing. When, I mean, we love to fear the other. Like, that seems built in to... Right humanity's DNA. I mean, that's the history of world culture is this fear of the outsider, the other. But then periodically in in history, you see where the other is no longer like, 
there's a physical marker of like this is a foreigner because they look differently than us. It's like there's an ideological other um, where like they could think differently than me. So there's a fear of someone who could look like me, but they think differently. And this is like could look like us, but is really the alien robot other. Right. But uh, who's out to destroy us? Who wants to destroy us? And they could look just like us. And also everything they say. Anything anyone says can't be trusted because they might not know they are that alien <laughs> robot other. Like, it, it just deepens that metaphor to such, you know, to a level that is so paranoia inducing. Um, and, and I'm sure it gets played out that way throughout the series. Oh, yeah. Like, the, uh, the paranoia must have spikes where, like, there's a very, like, everyone just pointing at someone else. Are you a Cylon because of something you said right. three conversations ago, uh, you know, that's been bothering me. So, I'm thinking about this idea of the uncanny. Um, and, uh, so I'm just going to read this little section from Wikipedia. So the uncanny is a psychological concept, which refers to something that is strangely familiar, uh, rather than simply mysterious. It may describe incidents, uh, for example, when an everyday object or act is experienced in an unsettling, alienating, or taboo context. Uh, the concept was perhaps first fixed by Freud in his 99 essay, Das Unheimlich. For Freud, the uncanny's mixture of the familiar and the eerie confronts the subject with their own unconscious repressed impulses. Uh, and then Jacques Lacan wrote that the uncanny places us in the field where we do not know how to distinguish bad and good, pleasure from displeasure, uh, resulting in an irreducible anxiety gesturing uh, to the real. Uh, and then the concept has been taken up by lots of other thinkers. But Well, it's like the uncanny valley for special effects right now. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say... When the CGI characters become so lifelike, but there's still something that's just a hair off yes. the Uncanny Valley, where we'd rather it be straight up, like, hand-drawn cell animation, where it's clearly right. different, and, and, right. and it's not almost us. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I mean, the, the idea, with the way that this gets, one of the ways that this gets uh, fleshed out in philosophy, uh, or in, um, like, literary analysis, is where the thing that is terrifying is not far away or terribly other it's it's the thing that's closest to you is the thing that's causing you fear and i think that's the reason why i hate shapeshifters and i hate people that can take uh the identity of somebody that that you love or the fact that somebody that that is close to you could be something completely different than what you think you are that's it's one version of the uncanny uh that's uh, freud and lacan and lots of other people have said it can be one of the kind of scariest things, and for certainly it is for me. I just it really, uh, it really gets under my skin. I think that works well, and she even says that when she's talking to Baltar. She says, "You knew something didn't add up yes. about me in the usual way, you know." And so, but you were so attracted to me, you, you were, just let me write in, right? Exactly. <laughs> he wanted to, you know, kind of ignore it, or you know, or kind of overlook it. Yes. So. Other characters. Well, I just want to say about this theme real quick. I think one thing that's so interesting about this show is the paranoia that gets explored is that so often in shows uh, or, or in narratives, we say, like, the best of humanity is overcoming that fear. And in this show, it kind of says, well, you, if you're going to survive, you might need that fear. <laughs> like, that fear <laughs> of the other might need to exist if humanity is going to continue to, you know, be a race <laughs> in the stars. Um, and, and so I think it's it's like twisting what we so often see for, as like the great theme of a, of a series is about like overcoming differences and and uniting and this is saying when you're uniting you might be putting your arms around the Cylon and you might not know it and I, I think that's another reason why it's so unsettling is this this goes within the narrative you have logic for why that theme doesn't work but it still feels like the theme should be overcoming that paranoia yeah. and that fear 
But for us to survive, we need to embrace it for a while, at least. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very psychological. I think that's part of the appeal of it to me, is that it is just so psychological. Um, yeah. Uh, my favorite character, just to watch on screen, is Adama. Because... Oh, yeah. Dad Adama. <laughs> uh, yes, the dad. William, the, William Adama. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Edward James Olmos. Not Apollo Adama. Because right. Apollo tends to be called just Apollo, right? Yeah. Apollo uh, but, or Lee. Yeah. One of those. Edward James Olmos just... When he's on screen, it's like gravitas <laughs> incarnate. Uh, he does such an amazing job of commanding a presence that, that you feel through, through the television. And it, I love a lot of the other characters, but it just feels like there's something more happening with Edward James almost. Do you all agree with that? Oh yeah. He's, uh, he's amazing. Well, I, I think my favorite Edward James almost film is Stand and Deliver. When he's teaching the, Mm-hmm. The inner city gang mayor kids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's just like, you want his voice on your answering machine. <laughs> he's, he's amazing. But even like uh, 33, everyone looks tired, but I swear he is tired on well, set. He, he literally did not sleep for days to truly understand what sleep deprivation felt like and was he, looked like. Was he acting sleep deprived or what, did he do that like I as preparation remember. and then he. Yeah, I don't remember if it was. Before they filmed, mm-hmm. or if it was actually during the filming, but I know he went through a period of time where he literally was not sleeping. Maybe be really hard as the director. He just he wanted to know what that looked like, yeah. you know. And and like and this, you said, I mean, he just embodies that, you know, the the way he holds his body, the mm-hmm. way he moves, the way he talks. That when he's shaving and he cuts himself because mm-hmm. he can't hold the razor still, you know. And, and even yeah. uh, like his conversational beats that happen where like he hesitates just a second too long to gather his thoughts or you see sometimes like you, you feel like this is, you're watching someone who has just lost the train of thought and they're, they're raining it back in, but this is an actor doing that. But you feel like I've been that person. I've seen that person where they're so exhausted. They're not quite fully there, but they're determined to show that they are fully there. So it's Mm -hmm. not, um, it's like, I, I remember when I took some acting classes and said, if you ever have to act drunk, you don't act drunk. You act like someone who is drunk and trying not to act drunk. Because if you if right. you act on it, it's it's too far. You've got to act like you're trying hard not to. And I you, you there are those scenes where you see him acting not exhausted, but he's acting it, and it's just there's layers yeah. there that are happening that are just so good. One of the things that I liked about Adama, and I could say this, I think about the crew in general, is um, so when we were talking about Galactic Football League, we were talking about how sometimes it can be boring to see somebody that's on top of their game do their thing. Because you want to see them struggle and, uh, but I love, I, like, I love watching Starbuck fly and I love watching Adama <laughs> lead. And like, they're totally on top of their game. They're not struggling to do it. This is, it's second nature to them and they're so good at it. And you just joy in watching him like command a battle. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's astounding. And you know, like, in my brain, I know that it's just, a, f- a few people on a stage somewhere, you know, like saying, do the thing. And they're like, yes, I'll do the thing. You know, I'll pull the lever and push the button and I'll draw a line on this thing. But man, I am 100% convinced that they are in space doing this thing that they've done a million times or that, that he's acts like he's done a million times. It's just, uh, it's just like brings me joy to watch that. And I don't need to see him struggle. All right. 
well, in, that, that, in oh, that way. But I think what's what's good about these characters, and you see it so quickly, like, we're only watching four episodes, or four hours right here. Um, each character does have those areas where they struggle. Like, you love to watch Starbuck fly, but you wince when she's having personal interactions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of combat. Yes. Like, in combat, she is amazing, but she has no tact, and she has no social skills, and she yeah. does damage to her career in the way that she interacts with others. Uh, same with Adama. Like, he's great as the leader, but his interactions with his son are so tense and so realistically strained mm-hmm. um, that you see there's this other aspect of his life where he's not on his A-game and he's lost control. Yeah, she yeah. Uh, Starbuck would not be invited to my uh, my my brain my brain trust. She's, <laughs> she doesn't get a seat at the table. I will say that I think she's just one of my very favorite characters from the like. She's, oh, yeah, she's what brought yeah. me into the show was when I saw that episode and it was her. It was you know it was her acting and her mm-hmm. storyline and there was something about her that just drew me in. I think it's that mix of total competence. And being really good at something, and then you're just a mess otherwise. Self destructive. Like, and, not just yeah. awkward, but like making choices that everyone who's watching the show is like, don't do that thing. I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, the, uh, like, the XO, um, you understand why he's the XO, but he also has Could all die. these demons of his alcoholism that make him make bad decisions. But, like, when he gives the speech, like, he comes down hard on, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the one, uh, the person who may have made D. the mistake. Like, he comes out really hard on her and says, like, when we make mistakes, people die. Yes. And it's like, that needed to be said in the moment. And the way he said it is harsh, but everyone needed the harshness for the wake-up call because they're so exhausted. That's one of the things that's going to help pull them up. And then Adama can be a little softer, but you need that dynamic in the leadership. So he's doing what needs to be done right then. But then there are so many other moments where you see him on screen. It's like, oh, why are you doing the things you are doing? <laughs> well, and he's, he says, you know, if the XO, if you don't hate the XO, he's not doing his job. Yeah. Basically. Uh, so he know he he knows what his job is. And, I, I and feel he like, does it. I feel like the thoughts going through my head as I'm watching these characters is the same as when I take the scouts on a camp out. <laughs> and I want to tell them, like, whatever the thought is going through your head that you should do that thing, just do the opposite thing and you'll be okay. <laughs> Like, they all act like thirteen-year-old boys. <laughs> they just—they just all make such poor decisions. And that was something that I wanted to bring up in this conversation: is um, this idea of the anti-hero, right? Like they're all capable of doing heroic things, but they're all so broken. I mean, there's not anybody here that you could say, "I want my daughter to date that person," right? <laughs> or you know, like. I was going to say, I don't know if these are, like, strictly anti-heroes, because often I think the definition of the anti-hero, or, or the way that I conceive it, is they're doing heroic things, but they're doing it in an amoral or unethical okay. way. And these people, well, not Gaius, but most of them <laughs> have a morality about them, at least in those aspects of the lives that we're enjoying. <laughs> but, but like, Starbuck, I, like, she... I wouldn't say ethics are her main driving force in her personal <laughs> life. Yeah, like, what's her moral... Where does her moral compass point? Well, what's interesting about her, though, is... Um, and I think that's part of why I like her too, is that she's actually very spiritual uh-huh. and religious. Like you see her praying when she thinks Lee is dead yes, mm-hmm. and she goes to the Lords of Cobal and, and that happens in other scenes and they, they play on her. She has somewhere this kind of deep spiritual grounding, uh-huh. you know, and, and that's really interesting. So they're all very multifaceted. I mean, none of these characters are one dimensional, No, which is part of the beauty of all of them. They're juggling so many balls, the creators as the writers. 
I, yeah, it, I don't know how you write that many characters that feel so real and so complex so fast. And, yeah. and have introduced that many plot lines that aren't hard to follow necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would imagine if there was, if we were watching this when it aired and there was a year in between, I might lose some of the threads. But watching it, like, I don't struggle to follow anything. But there's yeah. a lot happening. I thought even, like, I think something that can be really tricky to, uh, film is not the right word, <laughs> to create, uh, is, like, space battle mm-hmm. can become, you can get totally disoriented in, like, watching, like, dogfights in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never get that feeling watching this. I feel like I know where people are in relation to other things, and it doesn't feel disorienting, um, except only when they want you to feel disoriented, right? Um, I think that's it's really well done. One small touch that I love for the space battles that helps with the orientation is the jets of gas that puff off yes. from the, the starfighters to explain how they're changing direction. Because so often, space battle is just, there's zero gravity, we're going to do whatever we want. Right. Ooh, hand-waving! <laughs> <laughs> Who needs physics? Because yeah, there's, there's no hand-waving in this. <laughs> yeah. But but they they give you like just enough grounding of the physics of using gas to do hard turns uh-huh. in space that I don't know how realistic that really is, but it's it's like more real than what we often get yes. in those, and yeah. it's just enough of that realistic grounding to feel like oh they they've put thought and effort into this, and it, and it helps those space battles have a weight that I think sometimes it's not just because it's in space and it's weightless, but there there's like a, a nothingness to space battles where it feels like it's right. just computer things, but seeing um you know Katie Sackhoff grit her teeth as you see jets that are making her her starfighter do a 360 um, and all the physics of that looks right it, it makes it feel different than so many other space battles I've seen I wonder if also the like the old tech that's on these that's on the on the Galactica for sure mm-hmm. uh, also kind of like gives a weight to the thing or like a grounding like, kind of like the uh, used universe of Star Wars. Right. Yeah. yeah. The corded phones mm-hmm. and the the old style radar and things the things that like that I think make it feel I don't know like heavier and, and something you can like more tangible. More, yeah, more I, I like that word tangible. I was going to say lived in but tangible which was really well versus heavy CGI sets that yeah. don't feel like it's the uncanny like it's just something that's just off enough that this doesn't feel like you could live there it's a, I, I don't know I think like the difference between uh, this the deck of the or the bridge of the the Enterprise in the in the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek it's like you wouldn't want to touch anything because you would break it's it for sure and everything's pristine you don't be the first one you would get fingerprints, fingerprints. <laughs> you would get fingerprints on stuff and here it, it's um like anybody could pick up the phone and, you know, it's... Well, know, or feels... hundreds of people have picked up that phone. <laughs> right. Yes, you know, that's I what mean, it is. It feels yeah, it feels like yes. it's been used. Right. Well, and that's something for 33 that I remember they talked about in, like, one of the commentaries that usually when a show starts, the first episode, they want everything to be, like, shiny and new and the actors yeah. look their best. And they totally flipped that. And they wanted the actors to look their absolute worst. Like, this is as bad as we could make these people look. They've had no sleep for five days. Mm-hmm. They're just run ragged, yeah. and the ships are damaged, and, you know, and, and they wanted to start off the episode kind of at the bottom of the curve, yeah. you know, and then you can start bringing them up the curve a little bit. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting choice on and, the part of the writers. And I think it, it makes, that, that choice makes... The decision to have the last moment of the episode is like plus one humanity. It makes it so much 
more like you have to have that or this is just so down right. <laughs> and so like you're <laughs> so beaten down as yeah. a viewer and and it's just so heavy to watch if you don't have that uplifting moment at the right. very end uh which isn't like oh you know we saved 1300 individuals it's no there was one human birth uh you know like i i, I remember when i was rewatching it just now like do they save that ship like or do are we really just down a thousand and it's not the like you think maybe they saved the ship and then nope we're gonna destroy it ourselves. Like yeah. it gets yeah. heavier than yeah. you thought. <laughs> it's not like the Cylons blew it up. We're going to actually blow it and up. And we're not gonna tell the viewers if there were humans on there or not. Well they do fly by and they don't you don't see anybody see in the window. Oh, there's been so much analysis of that really? fly by. Oh my goodness. So yeah. many fans have like Wait, I think I saw a shadow of somebody, or there was a voice on board that was clearly speaking to them, right. or, oh, there's been so much because, analysis of that, wow. that little fly. So often. <laughs> trying to figure out if there were people in there or not. Movies and TV shows will give the audience more knowledge than the characters, but they leave that one as, yep. you know, they leave you, like, did they just destroy 1,300 humans, or did they just save the fleet from a nuclear attack from the Cylons? And right. we don't know. And the answer could be yes on both accounts. Yeah. Yep. And I think it's a really bold choice for a series because we are used as, as viewers to getting that extra bit of information to comfort us about the decisions that our heroes make. And we're supposed to be left wondering, did Rosalind and Adama and, uh, like make the right decision to order that? And did Apollo and Starbuck do the right decision to actually shoot it? And it's, a, it's Starbuck, who is usually the most ruthless one in space, is the one saying, I can't pull this trigger. Yeah, yeah. And, No, I'm <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> Because she has that doubt, and and we don't get comforted as viewers about yeah. this decision at all. When, well, and and she was the one that had been yelling at Lee, saying, "You need to step up and act like a cag." Yeah. And and I'm sure you know it kind of like it's like that was haunting him, and he pulls the trigger and he follows the order. Yeah, he's the cag. But, and he but issues normally, the order. Yeah, and normally she probably has the most shots fired and the highest kill count of any pilot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the TV show Lost was 2004. This predates it. By a year, the miniseries. The miniseries, right. um, but is it safe to say you're you're my uh, experts on television history? <laughs> it feels to me like like a switch was flipped with Lost and and with this show, like, and now we sort of expect this kind of grittier. Um, more complex characters, more complex storylines. You can't miss an episode. You can't miss an episode. The previously on that keeps you caught up. And the previously because... on might be going back three seasons. <laughs> like, yes. oh, remember right. the this, this seed we right. planted in season one, episode four? It's finally coming to fruition in season four, episode right. nine. Right. Like really long story arcs. Yeah. I mean, full series mm-hmm. story Could we say arcs. that this is like the first wave of, of that? I think so. Um, Previously, like in the 80s and 90s, it was very episodic, and a lot of that mm-hmm. was actually like technolo- technolo- right. technologically driven. Like mm-hmm. if you you didn't want to force your audience to never miss a show, because then if they missed one, they might never come back, because there's right. no way to catch right. up. And this is in the early days of TiVo, not even like DVRs coming with your cable box, but early days of TiVo, and um, also the trust in the Netflix DVD model of binging, that people would catch up if they found a show they liked. Yeah. And I think that gave network executives a little more trust in allowing this long form style of storytelling, but it's been going for 20 years now. I won't be surprised if we see it bounce back towards more episodic because there's just so much content that people might need something they can fly in on yeah. and just watch an episode of a sitcom and not worry about, you know, the 18 plot lines <laughs> that have been building for five years. And I would say we're seeing it 
in sitcoms already, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, Parks and Rec is super episodic, although there are kind of longer arcs. But, it, I mean, is the most episodic Kimmy one we've Schmidt. talked about is, um, like, Corner Gas. You can watch an episode from season yes. six or season one, and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter at all. Yes. Parks and Rec, there's still a huge difference between the character relationships in the final yeah, season you're right. versus the earlier seasons. But, like, Corner Gas is basically, like, an old-style cartoon mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. where the characters never age, they never evolve, the relationships never shift. And... There's always ebbs and flows in how storytelling goes. I'm just waiting for us to kind of start leaving some of this long form because it's been going for about 20 years, and that's yeah. usually, you know, the end of a cycle. I think there will always be something that's doing this. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to go away at all. It's just not going to be the most dominant form of storytelling, which it really became, I think, in the in the early mm-hmm. 2010s. Like, every network had four or five that were supposed to be their heavy mythology shows, and most of them bombed after a season, and their fans got angry because their mistakes <laughs> never got resolved. <laughs> okay. So we've been going for a while. We probably don't have too much longer. I wanted to make sure we, that we touched on President Roslyn uh, as as one of the, the characters that really pops off the screen as well. She's got a loaded cross to bear <laughs> right from the get-go. Yes. <laughs> um, like, we, we see her essentially given a, an execution order. Like, you're going to die right before all of humanity gets its execution order from the Cylons. And I loved one of the moments that just felt so real and real uh, and human is when she said, I'm alive and I know like the human race, we're on the brink of extinction, but all I can think about is that I'm going to die from this cancer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it just felt so real that that would be a concern that someone had in this setting. Like the, the, the personal, in the face of this almost incomprehensible, massive tragedy that's happening around, like the personal is still going to matter to them. It's the counterbalance of the, the baby being born at the end, where they do it, they do the same thing. Uh, but bringing hope and it again makes this personal and that's uh, my so I was talking with my parents tonight um, and they said so uh, my mom said so what's this Battlestar Galactica thing and it took me like 20 minutes just to explain the premise of the show (laughs) and I said and it was all this big big stuff right so there's Cylons and artificial intelligence and then they obliterate the human race with a few people left and then I said, but really, it's a show about, like, ten people. And that's what really makes it interesting, are these people and the intimacy of their problems, not the not the big, huge ones, although the, that sort of drives everything. I mean, that's, that's what adds weight to all their decisions that they're making, is this backdrop of, we're trying to save the human race. Yeah. I like her. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, we see her, she's just the secretary of education, Adama, you know, sitting there saying, you're a school teacher, you know, what do you know about being a president or leading? And I love the scene where she takes the oath of office and mm-hmm. her hand is shaking. And I, I mean, again, it feels so human. It feels so real that she's overwhelmed and yet she totally steps up to the plate and she takes on this role and she's immediately... She knows what people need. Like, she seems to have this intuitive knowledge of, okay, they need to be kept busy. I need to give them assignments and be telling them, you go do this, you go do this, you know, keep busy in the face of this massive tragedy. And and that her thought is all for, you know, gathering as many people as she mm-hmm. can. Um, and we didn't talk in the, the summary about the the scene where she's gathered all of these ships and she goes and meets a little girl on one of the ships and has this conversation with her. And then it turns out that that ship can't make the faster than light jump. And, but she has to make the call to say, we've got to leave this ship behind. 
And she makes some really tough calls, you know, (laughs) and just uh, that she, and I don't know if she gets the strength of knowing that she's got the cancer and it's kind of like, what do I have to lose? You know, Mm -hmm. at this point, I've got to, you know, I, I've got to just make these tough calls and not worry about how people are going to think about me down the road or, you know, or whatever. But yeah. And then 33, keeping that number on the whiteboard. Right. You know, for her, every life is precious. Every single life that's left. So the number on the whiteboard, if you don't remember, listeners, it's it's how many humans they know are alive. It makes me wonder, like, what backstory, what's her backstory that gives her the ability to step into that role and and do it remarkably well, especially considering that she was number 43 in line and, you know, a quote-unquote school teacher. And they they deal with her backstory, you know, a little bit throughout the series. Not a ton, um, in that, you know, it's not like giving her whole life story. Sure. You know, but they deal with certain events that have happened to her and, and, um, certain things that she's had to overcome. Seeing those things, does it help you understand better how she's able to take on that leadership? Yeah, but I think it's also... you are a teacher of college-age students. You know what it's like to try and control a room. That prepares you to lead all of humanity. I know. Well, basically, (laughs) I could step into the presidency of the United States tomorrow, and everybody would be fine, I'm sure. Well, we all... I mean, we've all taught, you know, and especially, I think, at a certain level, you... You teach and, yeah, you get this intuitive sense of, like, what your students need from you and what you can in turn give to them and what they need from One would hope. from you. So, <laughs> I, I know. There's some bastards, but don't feel like I've nailed that. not going to work for all of them, but there's certainly some along the way where, you know, and so I don't know if it was from that. There, there are those class periods where, where you feel like, a baby was born today. That was great. And there are some <laughs> class periods where it's like... I just got told we that lost answer. 1300 <laughs> we lost 1300 souls today. <laughs> a baby was born. <laughs> that was a good class. You can go through the whole range. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um but I think she her relationship with Adama and like the oh, it was fantastic. It, it's so good. And it, so often we're like we, we've been prepped again like within the larger world of consuming lots of entertainment you know the tension between the politician who has no military experience and the military leaders in the military you know when there's there's like a battle that needs to be fought that you know that tension is going to exist and you just like is this going to do something interesting or is it just going to be the classic and and kind of the um the rote style of this like I, I started watching designated survivor uh, the new mm-hmm. series with Kiefer Sutherland as he's like the bottom rung of right. the, the line and all of the government gets killed. And like within the first episode, like there's a near military coup because they don't trust him. Like I almost wish they'd had the military like really support him just to yes. do something different. Because <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I've seen that. But they do something different with this. Like there's a mutual respect, but also like, do I trust your decision making more than my own? That happens mm-hmm. throughout that. Again, it feels weird to say this about a show that's about ro- a robot uprising <laughs> and the near extinction of humanity, but it feels real and human the way well, that those two interact. she even says, the first time they meet, she says, is this where you're going to tell me that there's going to be a coup? And he goes, nope. Yeah, <laughs> and she's like, okay. <laughs> he says, you do your job, I'll do mine. And she says, all right, I'll, you know, I'll But they still butt heads in doing their jobs yeah. in a way that feels realistic. Yeah. yeah. But it's not like he's going to... Take over. Space her. And, and make himself <laughs> the king of, you know, the yeah. human race. Well, yeah. Keep watching season one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, season one. <laughs> all right. Well, but I love the fact that even, you know, in the face of all of this, they're 
swearing in a new president. You know, they're trying to keep a government and, like, a civilian population yeah. intact, which is a really interesting twist on this type of, you know, a lot of times it would just be the military going out, and that's what Adama wants to do. He wants to go fight the Cylons. And she's like, you're an idiot. You know, what, we lost the what war. are you going to do we have if you lost. go try to fight the Cylons? You know, you're uh, going to get destroyed and all that's left of humanity will be totally defenseless. You know, and, and he kind of huffs and puffs, but then he realizes, yeah, she's probably right. Yeah. You know, and okay, we need to jump out of here. So. Well, any final thoughts on this Listeners, if you haven't given this a try, I would recommend it. It's not available on Netflix or Amazon Prime right now, but the DVDs are not very expensive uh, on Amazon. Was, not for kids. Not for kids. Not uh, for yes, kids. yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. But if you want a show that's going to make you think, and uh, like Todd said with that Portlandia sketch, uh, make you want to watch the next episode right away, this <laughs> yes. this would be a good show. So if, if all your network shows are off because it's summer and you're looking for something to watch, I'd recommend Battlestar Galactica as an option. I'll also say that you'll understand a lot more references in Big Bang Theory if you watch that or a couple other shows, you know, with their references to Cylons. um, And one final thought, I think, for me is how rewatching the miniseries or last year I watched the whole thing from beginning to end with my husband and how applicable it still is. This was written right off right after 9-11 and you see a lot of overtones and homage to like the they go through the walls of the ship where everybody has hung the pictures of their mm-hmm. loved ones and and if you remember nine eleven you know that people were doing that in New York City and there's a lot of like homage to nine eleven but so much of the series is still so applicable today and the issues I mean they end up dealing with so many complex issues that are you know, very applicable to society today. So it, it holds up really well. That's what the best sci-fi I think is able to do is to do things that are topical, but also with enough distance because of the setting and, you know, how they're telling the stories that it remains universal, even mm-hmm. as it, it's topical to the moment that it's created. If they do it well, um, there's going to be something thematically that will still resonate after that moment of topicality has passed. You know, that, that specificity is gone. Yeah, and it it really makes you think about, like, where you fall on, like, they have um, a storyline in season two that deals with suicide bombing, but it's the colonials that are doing the suicide bombings, and they're the good guys, you know, and so it really makes you think about where do you fall? Is suicide bombing okay? Is it not okay? When, you know, like, what are the perspectives of people who do it? And it never comes out and says who's right and who's wrong. It just makes you as an audience right. member sit and think, well, what is my personal belief in what's right and what's wrong? And I love that part of the show, that it it doesn't come out and tell you what's right and wrong. It makes you think about it and make the call for yourself. So Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, Virginia, as a first-time guest, we always like to ask the dinner party question because we talk about great characters and great stories. If you could have a dinner party with three to five great characters just to enjoy the conversation, who would you want to have around? All right. So as I am a longtime listener, and I know this question was coming up, I've given this lots of thought. Um, and my thinking was, well, I wouldn't have a dinner party without my husband. 
And so I want couples at my dinner party. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I don't know if that's cheating. Three to five couples. We <laughs> because that up. gets me a few more characters in the room. <laughs> um, and I started thinking about who would be some of my favorite couples to have over to this. But you're sticking with like characters that were actually couples in their stories. You're not suddenly yes. pairing Captain Kirk and Wonder Woman or no, anything. No, these are, are couples. So at first I thought, you know, I mean, there's the obvious couples, like you have Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy or something like that. But I want a more interesting dinner party. So I went with my favorite stories that have seem to have tragic or very dysfunctional. If Gaius couples. and number six, if Gaius and number six <laughs> they are, are not Although at your dinner party, <laughs> I want Gaius alone with head with number head six. six. Yeah. Well, it was great. This is a little spoiler, but if you keep on watching the show, you later get six with a head Gaius. And it's the most fantastic scene what? you've ever seen. What? It blows your mind. Okay. It is worth keeping watching just for that scene because the head Gaius is hilarious. Okay. I can so, see that after having a lot of fun with that. It, oh, James Callis is fantastic. Yeah, he is. And in real life, crazy. he's just a trip. So anyway, um, so these are some of my just, you know, kind of top favorite stories overall that I realized a lot of them have very tragic or dysfunctional couples in them. And I would love right. you're in good company. I would love to see that couple back together in a room and, you know, just see if the sparks fly or the China flies. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what happens? So here they are. Um I have Aeneas and Dido from the Aeneid. Ugh. Okay, have... yeah, that's your <laughs> They were my favorite couple of classical literature, and it broke my heart For any listener when she killed who, herself. Who was unfamiliar? And... Could you give a quick, like, ten so second version? So Aeneas of... was the Trojan prince that sailed away from the Trojan War, and in his travels, he meets the Carthaginian queen Dido. She's hit with a love arrow, falls in love with him. He gets involved with her, and then he ups and leaves her so he can go found the Roman dynasty. And she kills herself when he leaves. And Classic romance. I, so, I would just. And you criticize me for liking Odysseus. I get, just as a romantic couple, Todd. As one of I'm not friends. saying that this is a romantic couple. I would just. They were just one of my. It broke my heart when Dido killed herself, and I just like to see her alive again, okay. and she can give it to Aeneas for leaving. Um, Dido is your uh, my Padme Amidala. I want her back. Yes, very much. Um, Han Solo and Princess Leia. Just to get those two together again. Is there an before. era, the, the Empire Strikes Back console? Yeah, something around there. No. Yeah. Not The Force Awakens, huh? Uh, no. <laughs> so well, funny. again, you know, let's just get Han Solo alive again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have Starbuck and Apollo from Battlestar Galactica. Interesting. Adore them. And again, you have to watch the whole season to understand. That scene when she rescues him in outer space is amazing. Fantastic. But they are quite the dysfunctional. Uh, off and on throughout. Uh, Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler. <laughs> this is amazing. Fantastic. And just to make the party really fun, I want Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Oh my goodness. <laughs> just to have some fun. <laughs> they would take over the party. <laughs> and if you watch Battlestar Galactica, see Starbucks arc all the way along, and you have Lady Macbeth, and uh, it would be fun times. So Wait, what? Just don't. Yeah. We can't give spoilers. I can't do too many to spoilers, in. but... There's a whole afterlife oh theme that we could play with, and it would well, be fun for, times. For Dido Starbuck, too. <laughs> yes, and, and Dido. Yes, we have her in the underworld, in the Aeneid, so there's a whole... Oh, man. I think afterlife. that is a very unique dinner party that you have arranged. Yes, I. we've never had one quite like that. I think that that one would be fun. 
Well, thank you, something. Virginia, for being a guest <laughs> on with us. As we talked about Battlestar, we will try and have you on again sometime. Absolutely. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us, and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in Apple Podcasts uh, or any other place where you listen to podcasts, and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. Uh, like if links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And Virginia, are you on uh, Twitter Social or media. anywhere? Nope. Not really. I work for Ancestry now. I'm a genealogist. Well done. So I have no need for social media. All the people I research are dead. Are dead? <laughs> Congratulations on breaking free. That explains breaking your dinner party free. a bit more. It does. See? <laughs> uh, we have really great conversations on Facebook and, uh, and would love for any of you to stop by and say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss. Or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or going to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quickcasts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and costs you nothing more, but we get a small kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. Touch it periodically. I just did. It was at 20 minutes. So See, you, also, you say don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. Except when I tell you, you can touch <laughs> Except also, what he says please touch. keep an eye when each different person is speaking in long periods to make sure that the level is more or less even.